All right. Good morning, beloved. Great to sell these beautiful faces here today. I want to invite you to uh, open your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Like I said earlier, I, I thought today would be the day we were wrapping up this study of 2 Peter. But uh, as the Lord would have it, there was a lot, a lot to work through. So uh, it's going to have to be a two-part two part sermon. So we got one more week after this week in, in 2 Peter. Um, but we are looking at this morning verses 11 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Let me read these all to you, and then we can look at how to apply these. Beginning in verse 11, here now are the words of the living and true God. Peter writes, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him wrote to you as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction you, there, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Before we uh, begin with our verses this morning, I want to just kind of give us a quick review of what Peter's been talking about through this letter. I remind you, Peter is writing to Christians, Christians who are being tested not only by persecution from outside the church, but from persecution from within the church by an onslaught of false teachers. And what are these false teachers trying to do? They're trying to undermine the church's trust in Scripture and thus to destroy the Christian faith. And beloved, this is nothing new. Nothing new. It is the same thing that false teachers have always done and always tried to do. These are wolves in sheep's clothing whose false religion denies the only true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll recall from our time in chapter 2, Peter describes these false teachers in vivid detail. Really a shocking chapter. He referred to them as greedy men who will exploit you with false words. 
He said they're like wild animals who carouse with you, for they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They entice unstable souls as their hearts are trained in greed. Peter calls them stains and blemishes on the church, and they are accursed. He says they have forsaken the right way and have gone astray. And so Peter writes one final letter of warning to the church that he clearly loves. Three times in this third chapter alone, calls them the beloved, the beloved, the beloved of God. Peter wants all of the readers to know false teachers when they see them, and chapter 2 is certainly devoted to that description. But it's not enough to merely know who they are. You have to defend against what it is that they say. And so in this epistle, Peter's been laying out for us three lines of defense, and they're all built around that Greek word epinosis, epinosis, which speaks to a right knowledge, a true, full knowledge of what we believe. And so, what must we know? Protection number one, you must know that you're saved. Protection number two, you must know your scriptures. And protection number three, which we'll focus on today, you must know your sanctification. In the first 11 verses of chapter one, Peter dealt with knowing your salvation. Because if you do not have a true saving knowledge of the gospel, and you are not assured of your salvation, then you become one of those unstable souls that he talks about in chapter 2 that the false teachers will prey on. And then the second protection went from the end of chapter 1 until the beginning of chapter 3, right up until last week, as Peter demonstrates to us over and over again that one of the best ways to guard yourselves against the false teachers is you must know your scriptures. You must know the scriptures and the reason why this is so important is because oftentimes false teachers misuse scripture in order to deceive you in fact who do you think they learned it from satan satan it was satan who first said in the garden did god really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and so we are not surprised then that this is what false teachers do They don't rightly divide the scriptures, as 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to do. And they will twist the scriptures, taking them out of context, in order for them to say something that they don't. And so, if you don't know the scriptures, how are you going to recognize their error? However, if you do know the scriptures, and you believe this is the true word of God, then whatever comes your way, you can rightly measure against the truth of God's word. And when we come to chapter 3 and verses 3 through 4, Peter reveals the false teacher's true motive for denying Scripture. In verse 3, it says that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, Paul continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is the true motive of the false teacher. They deny the day of the Lord. Not because they can disprove it scripturally. No, they deny the future judgment because they love their sin. They love their lust. And they want an eschatology that fits their immorality. And so here in chapter 3 with our remaining verses, Peter will 
now deal with our final safeguard, knowing your sanctification. And essentially what Peter will say is, since the day of the Lord will come, what sort of people ought you to be? As believers, we should live in light of the Lord's return. And so summarizing the whole letter, Peter's point is this. If you know that you are truly saved by the righteousness of God and our God and Savior Jesus Christ, and you know your scriptures, and if you know you've been set apart for glory and are being sanctified by the Spirit of God, if you know these truths about what God has said and what God has done, then, says Peter, you will set your defense against the deception of false teachers. And so Peter, having just made it very clear that Jesus is coming back, now poses a very important issue of what does this all mean for the believer? So what? What does it mean? If we know that Jesus is coming, and we are, as verse 12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which in verse 13 he describes to us as new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, if you are anticipating this final state, this glorious future, the eternity that God has planned for those who love Him, how should it impact your life now? If you're looking forward to that, to, to final glory, shouldn't it have some very strong implications on how you live today? Now, keep this in mind. He uses the phrase, the day of God, here in verse 12. And as you can see down in verse 18, right there at the end, he uses the term the day of eternity. Both the day of God and the day of eternity refers to the new heavens and the new earth. Believers should be looking for the hastening and coming of that day, the eternal state. You're longing for that. It ought to have an impact on your life. We don't long for the day of the Lord, that term that's found in verse 10. That's a term of final judgment, destruction, and damnation. We're not longing for that. We're not living with anticipation for that. What we long for is what comes after that, the day of the Lord, namely, namely the day of eternity in which righteousness dwells. Now, you'll see in the back of your bulletin, I've broken this text up into three parts. In verses 11 to 18, Peter gives us Three ways to be diligent in light, of the, in light of the Lord's return. First, he says to be diligent, be diligent in order to live godly lives. You must be diligent and live godly lives. And he tells us what that should look like in verses 11 to 14. Notice how verse 11 begins. Peter says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Stop right there for a moment. That phrase, since all these things are to be destroyed, takes us back to verse 10, which says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, since we know all that's going to happen in this way, which will usher in the eternal state, the day of God, what sort of people ought you to be? And you'll notice if you have a New American Standard Bible or an ESV in verse 11, there's no question mark. And that's because in the Greek, it's actually uh, 
an explanation of excitement. The phrase, what sort of people, is a a rhetorical device in the Greek that doesn't expect a response. It's like a, a statement. In English, it could be translated this way. How astonishing, excellent you ought to be. Explanation point. (laughs) When he says, what sort of people ought you to be, implied in that is at what level of excellence ought you to live. And so, what we have here is a straightforward challenge to Christians to conform their lives to the reality of eternity. If Jesus is coming back to take you to be with himself, that where I am, there you may be also. If Jesus has delivered you from future judgment, is going to usher you into the great day of God to reward you and bring you into the kingdom of eternal righteousness, that ought to impact your life. In other words, if you've been created for glory, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, sanctified by God's Holy Spirit, then you ought to begin to live in light of that. That's what Peter is saying. Beloved, if this is what we have been saved for, how we ought to live even now should be consistent with our destiny. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul speaks along the same lines as Peter. He says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's coming a day, says Paul, when we're going to receive an eternal reward for what we have done in the body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he will expose the motives of the heart, and at that time each will receive their praise from God. God. And so, what kind of people ought we to be then? We aren't living for this world. We're aliens, strangers, foreigners. As followers of Christ, we are not a part of the world system. We don't love the world or anything in the world. It's not our home. We're pilgrims. We we belong to a heavenly place. We're looking for a city whose architect and builder is God, a a house not made with hands but eternal in the heavens. But even so, Peter asks in verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Godliness. And that's the arena in which he is speaking to. Holy conduct refers to our action, the way that I live outwardly, And godliness refers more to the attitude of the heart, the inner motives. Holy conduct is what rules my behavior, while godliness refers to what rules my heart, reverence. Now what does that mean? How does that break down? What are the attitudes of godly living and holy conduct in a practical sense? Peter answers those questions in verses 12 through 18. And before we look at those verses, I do want to remind you of something that Peter's already said concerning how we should live in light of the second coming. Take your Bibles and turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1 just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter 
speaks to both holiness and godliness. Now, just to refresh your memory, you may recall from our time in 1 Peter, those first 12 verses were all about praising God for this glorious salvation. Peter said in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter says, we have this glorious salvation, a living hope that will not fade away, a salvation ready to be revealed in full in the last time. So this looks forward to the eternal state, the day of God. He continues in verse 6, In this he greatly rejoiced, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the Lord returns, he reveals himself at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And remember who Peter is writing to. He's writing to Christians being burned alive for their faith. And so Peter encourages them, saying, you, beloved, have a living hope. Because we know that the earth and its works will be burned up. We fix our hope not on anything in this world, but only on the Lord Jesus Christ. You, beloved, have a faith that is genuine, a faith that has been tested and refined with fire, a faith more precious than gold, he says. So in light of that truth, how are we to live? Notice what Peter says in verse 13. He starts with that word, therefore. Because that looks back all the way back to, to what's just been said. Because all of that is true. Therefore, beloved, prepare your minds for action. That speaks to your holiness. Keep sober in spirit. That speaks to your godliness. And then he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, here we see that same concept. Live in light of that unbelievable grace that is going to be bestowed upon you in full when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in His second coming glory, revealed in His eternal kingdom. Live in such a way that you have fixed all of your hope completely on His grace. But how? Verse 14 tells us, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And so here again, he's calling for holiness and godliness in every area of our life. Every area of our life. Don't return to your former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. That's inconsistent with where you're headed. Rather, says Peter, like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also. 
if we're God's children, if we're headed for his kingdom, shouldn't we behave in a manner consistent with his calling? Remember back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Sermon on the Mount, one of the very first sermons the Lord Jesus Christ preached. He said during that sermon, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So in other words, we are to live in light of glory, which compels us to a level of holiness and godliness that is absolutely pervasive in our life, spread all over. The words actually mean holinesses and godlinesses. Just spread it all over your life. Well, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, 12 and find out what all this means. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. We ought to be people who are, quote, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And then notice the shift in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, the key phrase in the section is this term, looking for. And we see it in both verses. In verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And in verse 13, he says, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. As redeemed followers of Christ, headed for eternal glory to be with our Lord, we ought to be people who are living with expectancy of his return. Pretty obvious, right? We see this right in verse 12. We are to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It's as if Peter is saying, you certainly shouldn't be afraid of it. (laughs) You should be looking for it, anticipating it. You ought to be like the Christians Paul identified in 2 Timothy 4.8 as he described them as those who loved Christ's appearing. Or what about when Paul was in prison and he said in Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Far better. And John in Revelation 22.20 who said, even so come Lord Jesus. You ought to have a longing in your heart for the coming day of God. That verb looking for expresses an attitude of expectancy. It's an outlook on life that uh, watchfully waits for the Lord's return. Not sitting in your pajamas up on your roof. Being useful for the kingdom of God, but, but, but hastening, expecting it. That word hastening really only strengthens that previous concept. Rather than fearing the day of the Lord and fiery judgment, Christians long for it, knowing we have a living hope and nothing to fear. So we're not just waiting for it to happen. We're living with eager expectation and hope that he's coming soon. That's the idea he's trying to present. We live with that word from 1 Corinthians 16, 22 on our lips. Maranatha, Maranatha. Our Lord, come. 
Now, what does all that mean? How does that affect our holiness and godliness right now? Well, let's break it down to the most basic levels. And it means that I'm going to be dealing with some issues in my life. All right? So that I can say with confidence, Oh, Lord, come, and I know I won't be ashamed at His coming. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 talks about not being ashamed when the Lord comes. John writes, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So if I'm living a godly life, abiding in Christ, I can have confidence then and not shrink back in shame at his coming. Instead, I'm going to be anticipating and looking for the coming day of God. Now, that little phrase uh, in verse 12, the, the coming looking for and hastening the coming. It's that wonderful word, parousia, parousia. And it literally means the presence. The presence. It could be translated this way. Looking for and hastening the presence of the Lord on the day of God. That's the idea. And wherever it's used in the New Testament, it emphasizes a personal bodily presence of Jesus Christ. It's not the presence of an event. It's, not the, it's the presence of a person. And so we're looking for the presence of Jesus Christ, which will be the glory of the eternal day of God, which will be the crown jewel of the new heavens and the new earth. And so we long for Him to return. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that little phrase there, the day of God, has a totally different meaning than the phrase back in verse 10, the day of the Lord. One speaks of the eternal state, while the other one speaks of catastrophic judgment. Now, some commentators certainly would disagree with me. They seem to think that the day of God here in verse 12 also refers to the judgment. But I think it's rather clear that the day of God refers to the new heavens and the new earth, while the day of the Lord in verse 10 comes like a thief and brings destruction. It's described in the negative sense. So Peter says in verse 12, if you are looking for and hastening the coming of the, the day of God, and then this is where it gets challenging, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. This is where that whole thing gets kind of interesting and I ended up drilling down on this for several hours. See how it says the coming of the day of God and then it says because of which? That term because of which indicates that certain other events must first take place in order for it to occur. In preparation for that day, Peter reiterates that God must destroy the present sin-cursed universe. So we can say then that what he means here is in order to bring in the day of God, where we will spend eternity with him, there must be the day of the Lord. There must be the day of the Lord. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then the Lord is going to have to destroy the old one. That's what we see here. But what sort of people ought we to be? We should be a people looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter says we should be a people who are described as eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. Question, does that describe you? 
The next component of godliness speaks to an eternal peace. Our internal peace. Notice verse 14. Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And we'll stop right there. What's he mean, since you look for these things? What things? The day of God, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, the glorious kingdom awaiting us in the presence of our Lord. He says, since we look for these things, it requires for us to be diligent. Diligent. That ends up being another key term in this whole section. I titled this sermon, Be Diligent. And this is just another way of saying to make every effort. We saw this term back in chapter 1 and verse 5, 6, and 7. It was referring to, now what do we do? It stresses our responsibility. Making every effort to be found by him in peace. And I want to just make a brief comment about that phrase, to be found by him. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, you will be found personally by him. There will be nothing hidden on that day. There will be nothing overlooked on that day. Everything will be brought to light when the day of God comes. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, that when the Lord returns, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before him, the judgment seat of Christ. So, therefore, beloved, since you look for your Lord's return, be diligent. Make every effort to be found by him in peace. Peace. In other words, since we are anticipating the Lord's return, it should be that when He finds us, He will find us having been diligent to live in peace. Now, what does He mean by that? What does He mean that when He comes, we should be found in peace? What kind of peace does this speak to? Well, it could mean having peace with God. Peace with God. Okay? Um, that when He returns, that He would find us in a saving relationship with him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's already referred to his readers as the beloved of God. We know he's writing to true believers. So it wouldn't seem like he's talking about salvation right here. Different kind of peace. It's possible that he could mean to be at peace with other believers. That what he is saying is that when I come and set up my glorious kingdom, I want to find you living peacefully with each other. The peace of Christian love. The unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Peace with men. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here either. Though it might be a component of it. I think what he's saying here is that you be found enjoying the peace of God personal peace of mind, the peace that comes from a strong faith and trust and security in the Lord. It's maybe best summed up by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6-7, where he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that's the kind of peace that Peter's talking about. That's the kind of peace that guards your hearts and your mind. The kind of peace that makes us free from anxiety. The kind of peace that makes us free from fear. The kind of peace that isn't anxious for Christ to come. For fear that He will find me ensnared in my sinfulness and shame. That kind of peace that is free from worry about the future. That kind of peace that knows no fear regarding the day of the Lord because we enjoy the peace of God. And this says the Apostle Paul, is the peace that surpasses all human understanding. It transcends human intellectual power. It transcends human explanation, for it is only found in Christ Jesus. I think what Peter is saying is to be diligent in such a way that when the Lord comes, you will be in total peace. You will be in peace. Another way to say it is the way Paul said it when he wrote to Timothy and spoke about those who love his appearing. Those who love the appearing of Christ because they're in a right relationship with him. It means that you have a strong sense and an assurance of your salvation so that you will not be ashamed at his coming. That if you were to know Jesus was coming back in the next 24 hours, could you rest easily with the peace of God? I wonder if that would be the case for us. If we knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow morning, what would it be like for us over the next 24 hours? Would you be found living in complete uh, peace, calm and comforted by your Lord, knowing that your account with God is settled? Are you certain that if the Lord returns tomorrow that you'll be caught up together with Him in the clouds in the air and there you will always be with the Lord? Are you certain that if the Lord returns tomorrow that you will not be left behind to experience the frightening, fiery judgment that is coming for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? If God's judgment were to break loose upon the earth, would all be well with you? Would you have the peace of God? One of the real challenges of our Christian life is to live in a fallen world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation enduring all that pain and hardships that come along with the fallenness and yet in the midst experiencing the peace of God, knowing that God is sovereign, that He's working everything out for His glory and that all is well between you and Him and His purposes for you will unfold perfectly as He has revealed in Scripture. That is the peace of assurance. That is the peace of security. If you are looking for and hastening the coming day of God, looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, if you think about seeing Him face to face and, and that day when you will enter into the glories of His presence forever... Since you look for these things, beloved, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. Peace. You should have a fearlessness in your heart because you know beyond a shadow of doubt that you are saved by His grace.
1 John 4.17 says that we should have confidence in the day of judgment. There's the principle and the command. Have confidence, beloved. So says Peter, as you anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ, you should be living in anticipation and you should have the internal peace of God, which the Apostle Paul says surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then back to verse 14. Notice the very end of the verse. He says, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So not only are we to be diligently to be found in Christ in peace, but he also says we are to be spotless and blameless. Now this reminds us of something back in chapter 2 when Peter was unmasking the false teachers. Back in chapter 2 at the end of verse 13, you may remember Peter described the false teachers as stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. So in contrast, to being stains and blemishes, you, beloved, should be spotless and blameless. These uh, two terms speak of both character and reputation. They speak of both what we are in reality and what people think we are. For example, being spotless speaks to my character, what I really am. There's no spots or blemishes on my life. Being blameless is more about my reputation and my above reproach. Who do people think that I am? The Lord wants to find us pure in reputation, spotless as to our character, blameless as to our reputation. Now, obviously, within the church, there are going to be those whose lives are neither blameless nor spotless. They may or may not be true believers if they have fallen into unrepentant sin. There are also some, however who outwardly appear blameless, but whose private life are actually far from being spotless. Like modern-day Pharisees, they work hard on looking on the outside perfectly, but fail to have true righteousness of the heart inwardly. Let me give you a, a couple scenarios and possibilities as we think through some of these. It's also possible that you could be spotless, but at least in one sense not blameless. What do I mean? Well, it's possible that you could be living a pure and godly life, but in the eyes of the world, you are not blameless. That is usually because somewhere along the line in your past, there has been a very severe stain in your life. And it's such a severe stain, it has stained your reputation to such a degree that though you are now spotless, those people still remember that stain. So while you are fully forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ and you are a new creation in them, somewhere along the line, you brought reproach upon yourself. And so while you are spotless and you are on your way to glory, you may not be above reproach. And in this scenario, you are not blameless. And I just draw this out for you. See the implications because at first glance, it seems like a rather simple statement. But the point Peter makes here is simply by the grace of God, we want to live pure, holy, godly lives, avoiding spots and blemishes on the body of Christ. When the Lord returns, he wants us to be pure. How do we do that? By his grace. By his grace, we need his grace. We need his grace. 
We must detest our sin. We must confess our sin. We must, we must have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in the sanctification of our faith. We need to use discernment. We need to avoid tempting situations. We need to desire a holy life. Indeed, be faithful men and women of prayer, people who attend Bible studies and study the Scriptures on your own, people who worship Christ. The Lord says, that's how I want you to live until I come. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless, blameless. So, Peter says, number one, we must be diligent to live godly lives. Point number two, and we're just going to introduce this, like I said, point number one, I could have been there forever. Point number two, we must be diligent to win the lost. To be used by God to win those to Christ. In the time in which we are looking for this great and glorious eternal state to come, he says in verse 15 that we are to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, we are to be, not to be caught up using our time, or we should rather be caught up using our time, gifts, and talents for the intended purpose of the salvation of God's people. The Lord is waiting to return in order that he might save. Look back at verse 9 again. You'll recall this last time. The mockers were saying, where is the promise of his coming? You said he was coming back. Where is he? Peter's response was, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is for purpose of redemption that God is patient. His purpose of salvation that he waits. God's perceived slowness is in fact his long-suffering and mercy, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So he is so very patient, so very merciful. Listen to the loving patience of our Lord from Ezekiel 33.11. The Lord says this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he's tearing and tearing and waiting and waiting until every last one of his children turns from their sins and comes to the Father in repentance. And we see this imagery and this magnificent story of the beautiful patience of our Lord in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. Most of you know it. The son leaves his father's house in order to indulge in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he squanders all of his inheritance and heads down for some loose living and cheap thrills. And at the end of the road, he becomes so enslaved to sin he essentially has to sell himself to a farmer. He's so hungry, starving, that he even longs for the pods 
that he feeds the pigs with. But his father, his father longs for his son to return. And so the father waits for him and waits for him patiently, patiently waiting until one day the son comes home. And when the father sees his son and he was still far way off, his father so filled with compassion, Scripture says, that he runs to himself, throwing his arms around him and kissing him. And so it is with God our Father. Patiently, patiently waiting. And so what Peter is saying in verse 15 is in this time of God's patience, recognize that the patience of the Lord is for purposes of salvation. That while we're looking for and hastening the Lord's return, that we be diligent not only to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, but that we're to also be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. In fact, in 2 Timothy or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul really articulates what should be the passionate heartbeat of every true believer who is waiting for the coming of Christ. He said in verse 18 that God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling to the world, to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. When I think about the day of God, which is a blessing for me, I also have to think about the day of the Lord, which is damnation for those who are around me. Right? There is a graphic illustration of this same attitude that comes from the heart of the Apostle John, if you want to look at it quickly. It's in Revelation chapter 10. The Apostle John was contemplating the future judgment and the angel of the Lord was kind of giving in the story. And when the angel brought to John this little book, it's described as a, a scroll earlier, he says to John in verse 9 to take it and eat it. Eat the little book. In verse 10, John says, I, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and, and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, though my stomach it was made bitter. The book of Revelation is a very symbolic book, so what does all this mean? Well, the little book represents, I think, the, the title deed to earth. The title deed to earth. And when the seals earlier in the chapters are broken off, the scrolls, they reveal God's judgments upon the earth. And when Jesus, or actually when John eats the scroll, it's revealing the judgments. So it's on one hand for John, sweet as honey, because it ushers in the day of God. But it's on the other hand, bitter in his stomach, because it also means damnation of the unbelieving world. The true believer who is waiting in the time of God's patience sees that the patience of God is extended 
to himself and salvation for those who will repent. With what attitudes then do we await the day of God? The glorious eternity that God has prepared for us? With what attitude do we await that final glory? With anticipation, looking for it eagerly. With the peace of God because of the blessed assurance we have in Christ. And purification, living godly lives both in character and reputation. And in evangelization, making sure that the patience of God lingers in our zeal to lead men to salvation carry us through this time of His patience. Well, there's a lot more to go through in these final four verses that I didn't want to rush through. So, if the Lord so continues to tarry because He's so patient, we will finish Second Peter next week. If you are in need of prayers, I want to invite you to please come forward today. We would certainly love to pray with you. So we please stand and praise the Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords.